Chapter 13 of Our Army at the Front. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Laszlo Beauregard. Our Army at the Front by Haywood Brown. Chapter 13 Behind the Lines. The difficulty of describing the American organization behind the lines in France lies in the fact that the story is nowhere near finished. The end of the first year saw huge things done, but huger ones still in the doing, and the complete and the incomplete so blended that there was almost no point at which a finger could be laid and one might say, they have done this. But at the end of the first year, all the foundations were down and the cornerstones named, and though much necessary secrecy still envelops the actual facts, something at least can be told. America could no more move direct from home to the line in the matter of her supplies than she could in that of her men, and it was at her intermediate stopping point in both cases that her troubles lay. It was, as Belloc put it, the problem of the hourglass. Plenty of room at both ends and plenty of material were invalidated by a little straight between. It was not a month from the time of the first landings of the troops, in June 1917, before the wharfs of the ports chiefly used by incoming American supplies were stacked high with unmoved cases. The transportation men worked with might and main, but the shipping board at home, under the goad of restless and anxious people, was sending and sending the equipment to follow the men, and once landed, the supplies found neither roof to cover them nor means to carry them on. This was the point at which General Pershing began to lament to Washington over his scarcity of stevedores and labor units, and soon thereafter was the point at which he got them. On September 14, 1917, W. W. Atterbury, Vice President of the Pennsylvania Railroad, was appointed Director General of Transportation of the United States Expeditionary Force in France, and was given the rank of Brigadier General. General Atterbury was already in France, and had been offering such expert advice and assistance to General Pershing as his civilian capacity would permit. With his appointment came the announcement of others, giving him the assistance of many well-known American railroad men. When the first division reached France, it was discovered that it required four tons of tonnage to provide for each man. That meant 80,000 tons for each division, which, in the figures of the railroad man, meant 80 trains of 1,000 tons capacity for every division. For the first 200,000 men in France, who formed the basis for the first railroad reckoning, 800 trains were necessary. Obviously, these trains could not be taken from the already burdened French. Obviously, they could not tax further the trackage in France, though the trains and engines shipped had essential measurements to conform to the French roadbeds so that interchange was easy. Still more obviously, the trains could not be made in this country and rolled onto the decks of ships for transportation. So that before the first soldier packed his first kit on his way to camp, the AEF required railway tracks, enormous reception wharfs, assembling plants and factories, and arsenals and warehouses beyond number. The only things which America could buy in France were those which could be grown there by women and old men and children, and those which were already made. The only continuing surplus product of France was big guns, 
which resulted from their terrific specialization in munition plants during the war's first three years. To find out what could legitimately be bought in France, and to buy it, paying no more for it than could be avoided by Weiss purchasing, General Pershing created a General Purchasing Board in Paris late in August. This board had a General Purchasing Agent at its head, who was the representative of the Commander-in-Chief, and he acted in concert with similar boards of the other Allied armies. His further job was to coordinate all the efforts of subordinate purchasing agents throughout the army. The chief of each supply department, and of the Red Cross and the YMCA, named purchasing agents to act under this board. It was not long till this board was supervising the spending of many millions of dollars a month, which gives a fair estimate of what the total expenditure, both at home and abroad, had to be. As a case in point, a single branch of this board bought in France, the first fortnight of November, 26,000 tons of tools and equipment, 4,000 tons of railway ties, and 160 tons of cars. The cost was something over $3 million. These purchases alone saved the total cargo space of 20 vessels of 1,600 tons each. The General Purchasing Board adopted a price-fixing policy created at Washington in which it was aided by the shrewdest business heads among the British and French authorities. This board also had the power to commandeer ships, when they had to, notably in the case of bringing shipments of coal from England, where it was fairly plentiful, to France, where there was almost none. A second scheme for coordination, put into effect by General Pershing, was a board at which heads of all army departments could meet and act direct, without the necessity of going through the commander-in-chief. When the quartermaster's department made its budgets, the coordination department went over them and revised the estimates downward, or drafted work or supplies from some other department with a surplus, or redistributed within the quartermaster's stores, perhaps even granted the first requests. But there was a vast saving throughout the Army zone. The problem of America's behind the lines, including as it did the creating of every phase of transportation, from trackage to terminals, and then providing the things to transport, not only for an army growing into the millions, but for much of civilian France, was one which, all wise observers said, was the greatest of the war. Just how staggering were these difficulties must not be told till later, but surmises are free. And the praise for overcoming them, which poured from British and French onlookers, had the value and authority of coming from men who had themselves been through like crises, and who knew every obstacle in the way of the Americans. But if the preparatory stages must be abridged in the telling, there's no ban on a little expansiveness as to what was finally done. Within a year, American engineers and laborers and civilians working behind the lines had made of the wastelands around an old French port a line of modern docks where 16 heavy cargo vessels could rest at the same time, being unloaded from both sides at once at high speed by the help of lighters. These docks were made by a big American pile driver, which in less than a year had driven 30,000 piles into the marshy ooze and made a foundation for the enormous docks. Just behind the docks is a plexus of railway lines which, with what incoming and outgoing tracks and switches and sidelines, contains 200 miles of trackage in a terminal alone. It is, for the present, no German's business how many hundred miles of double and triple track lead back to the fighting line, and it is the censor's rule that one must tell nothing a German shouldn't know. 
but there is plenty of track, figures or no figures. Equal preparation has been made for such supplies as must remain temporarily at the docks. There are 150 warehouses, most of them completed, each 400 by 50 feet, and each with steel walls and top and concrete floors. When the warehouses are finished, they'll be able to hold supplies for an army of a million men for 30 days. They are supplemented by a giant refrigerating plant with an enormous capacity, which is served by an ice-making factory with an output of 500 tons daily, the whole ice department being operated by a special ice unit of the Army, officially called Ice Plant Company 301. The ice department also has its own refrigerator cars for delivering its wares frozen to any part of France. To provide for gun appetites as abundantly as for human, an arsenal was begun at the same point, which, when completed, will have cost a hundred million dollars. This arsenal and ordnance depot is being built by an American firm, at the request of the French mission in America, who vetoed the American project to give work to French contractors because of the man shortage in France. It has been built under the direct supervision of the War Department, and was specifically planned so that it might in time, or case of need, become one of the main munition distribution centers for all the Allies. Small arms and ammunition are stored and dispensed here, while big guns go direct from the French factories. Regiments of mechanical and technical experts were constantly being recruited in America for this work, and they were sent by the thousands every month of the first year. Maintenance of the ordnance base alone requires 450 officers and 16,000 men. Included in the arsenal and ordnance depot are a gun repair shop, equipped to reline more than 800 guns a month, a carriage repair plant of large capacity, a motor vehicle repair shop able to overhaul more than 1,200 cars a month, a small arms repair shop ready to deal with 58,000 small arms and machine guns a month, a shop for the repair of horse and infantry equipment, and a reloading plant capable of reloading 100,000 artillery cartridges each day. The assembling shops in connection with the railroad were built on a commensurate scale. Even in an incomplete state, one shop was able to turn out 20-odd freight cars a day of three different designs, and at a neighboring point, a plant for assembling the all-steel cars was making one full train a day. The locomotives were assembled in still a third place. This will have turned out 1,100 locomotives built and shipped flat from America at the end of its present contract. Already a third of this work has been done. And there was, of course, the necessary number of roundhouses and the like to complete the organization of the self-sufficient railroad. Not far away was a tremendous assembling and repair plant for airplanes, the operators of which had all been trained in the French factories so that they knew the planes to the last inner bolt head. The last assembly plant was far from the least in picturesqueness. It was for the construction, from the numbered pieces shipped from Switzerland, of 3,500 wooden barracks, each about 100 feet long by 20 wide, and of double thickness for protection against French weather. The most amusing of the incidental depots was called the Reclamation Depot, at which the numerous articles collected on the battlefield by special salvage units were overhauled and refurbished or altered for other uses. Nothing was too trifling to be accepted. The old clow man of no man's land was responsible for an amazing amount of good material made at the reclamation department from old belts, coat sleeves, and the like. Many a good German helmet went back to the square heads as American bullets.
In the same American district there was a great artillery camp with remount stables, containing thousands of horses and mules. Under French tutelage, the American veterinarians had learned to extract the bray from the army mule, reducing his far-carrying silvery cry to a mere wheeze, with which he could do no indiscreet informing of his presence near the battle lines. So the mule hospital was one of the busiest spots in the port. A short distance from the port, the engineers built a 20,000-bed hospital, the largest in existence, comprising hundreds of little one-story structures, set in squares over huge grounds, so that every room faced the out-of-doors. Between the port and the hospital, and beyond the port along the coast, were the rest camps, the receiving camps, and a huge separate camp for the Negro stevedores. Near enough to be convenient, but not for sociability, were the camps for the German prisoners, who put in plenty of hard licks in the great port building. Midway between all this activity at the coast and the training and fighting activity in the fighting line, there was what figured on the army charts as intermediate section, whose commanders were responsible for the daily averaging of supply and demand. In the intermediate section, linked by rail, were the supplementary training camps, schools, base houses, rest areas, engineering and repair shops, tank assembling plants, ordnance dumps and repair shops, the chief storage for spare parts, all machinery used in the Army, cold storage plants, oil and petrol depots, the Army bakeries, the camouflage center, and the forestry departments, busy with fuel for the Army and timber for the engineers. The achievement of the first year was literally worthy of the unstinted praise it received, and perhaps its finest attribute was that most of it was permanent and will remain, while France remains, as America's supreme gift towards her post-war recovery. End of chapter 13